Hello and welcome to today's Mencast. We've got Dr Adam Lawson with us. He's a hepatologist at Derby Hospital. We're going to be talking a bit about ascites and TIPS procedure. Hi Dr Lawson. Hi, good afternoon. Let's imagine we've been asked to see a 50-year-old man who's presented with a distended abdomen and ascites. So the first question we need to ask ourselves is what is the cause of the patient's ascites? It could be due to malignancy, heart failure, and then more rarely things like TB and pancreatic disease. In 80% of cases, however, the cause will be liver cirrhosis. We're going to want to start by taking a history, performing a physical examination, and sending some blood tests. So let's say our patient has a history of excess alcohol consumption, he's got several spider nevi, and blood tests show raised liver enzymes and low platelets. All of this would make it more likely that he has liver cirrhosis as the cause of his ascites. It's important, however, that we are on the lookout for any symptoms or signs that may point to another cause. So if our patient has a raised JVP, we need to think about heart failure. And if there's clear symptoms that point to cancer, then we need to make note of that. Once we've done all of that, we need an abdominal ultrasound scan in order to confirm that our patient has ascites and also to have a look at the liver. It's important when you're requesting the ultrasound scan that you ask your sonographer to do a Doppler ultrasound of the portal vein so that you can check there's no evidence of an acute portal vein thrombosis. Portal vein thrombosis is common in patients with cirrhosis and it can be the reason why your previously compensated cirrhotic patient is now presenting with ascites. You might have access to a bedside ultrasound machine on your ward and if you are confident in their use it's reasonable to proceed with a diagnostic acidic tap which is going to be the next investigation that we need. Such as the availability of these machines I would no longer do either diagnostic or therapeutic drainage of ascites without first checking that I'm sticking my needle in the right place. Our landmarks for doing the tap are the same as if we were going to put in a therapeutic drain we're going to want to find the anterior superior iliac spine and then go approximately three centimeters up and then medial. We usually find ourselves about one third of the way between the anterior iliac spine and the umbilicus. And you want to remember to insert your green needle perpendicular to the skin. You see some people going across horizontally, which means you're more likely to hit bowel floating on the top of ascites. So we want to aim to take 20 mils of acidic fluid. We're going to expect that fluid to look clear and straw colored. So it comes out looking cloudy, then that might indicate spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. It comes out milky, that might indicate chylus ascites due to lymphatic obstruction. Mm -hmm. And should we delay doing a diagnostic acidic tap if the patient's clotting's abnormal or if they've got a thrombocytopenia? The short answer is no, but unfortunately we do see that that frequently happens because people are obviously concerned about causing bleeding. But you can refer to the American Association of Study of Liver or the European Association of Study of Liver guidelines, and they clearly recommend not correcting coagulopathy or thrombocytopenia prior to the acidic tap. It's important not to delay matters. There are British Society of Gastroenterology guidelines, which are now over 10 years old, and they do refer to giving a platelet transfusion if the platelets are less than 40. Though I'd suggest to you that the risk of doing a diagnostic tap in someone with a platelet count between 20 and 40 is likely to be very low. Mm -hmm. I think below 20 I would always want to give some platelets. So hopefully we've done our acidic tap. We should keep 10 mils aside and put that in blood culture bottles. And then we're going to divide the remaining fluid we have between two or possibly three universal containers. If our patient's presenting with ascites for the first time, then we're always going to 
sends some to biochemistry, asking them to check for albumin and protein levels. The albumin level is in order that we can calculate the serum acidic albumin gradient, or SAG. The other important test is the cell count. Now those two tests are the most important, but depending on your clinical presentation, then you may want to send fluid for additional tests, such as cytology, if you're considering a malignancy, amylase for pancreatic disease, and then if you do get chylocytes, then send your fluid for triglycerides. The key result in determining the cause of our patient's ascites is going to be the SAG. If that's more or equal to 11 grams per litre, then the result indicates portal hypertension as the cause of the ascites with 97% accuracy. So that's a low protein or low albumin ascites. If we then take that result together with our patient's history and clinical signs, and knowing that 80% patients with ascites have cirrhosis, then clearly that's very much now pointing to our man having ascites secondary to liver cirrhosis. If, however, his result came back with a SAG of less than 11, that should prompt us to do a thorough search for any intra-abdominal malignancy, and you usually start then with an abdominal CT scan. So the second question that we need to ask ourselves is whether our patient may have spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. A worsening liver function test may be the only clue that a patient has SBP. They don't need to have a pyrexia or abdominal pain. All patients admitted with liver cirrhosis and ascites should have an acidic tap sent for polymorph count and total white cell. The diagnosis of SBP is based on an acidic neutrophil count of more or equal to 250 cells per millimeter cubed and any patient with a result above that level is going to require treatment. Now a patient's result comes back with a very high acidic neutrophil count of more than a thousand. If you find you culture a number of organisms, then those results are going to suggest the possibility of a secondary bacterial peritonitis, and you're going to want to arrange a CT scan again, this time looking for other intra-abdominal pathologies such as a bowel perforation. You can culture a bacteria from your ascites, but your cell count is actually less than 250. We refer to this as bacteriocytes. It can herald SVP, but if your patient's clinically well, there isn't a need to start antibiotics at this point. Uh, so if we return now to our 50-year-old man who's presenting for the first time with ascites, we've shown that his acidic fluid analysis has a SAG of more than 11 and his neutrophil count is less than 250. So we've excluded SVP and we can now concentrate on the treatment of his ascites. So there's a number of steps that can be taken in the management of ascites, and the first of those is to restrict the amount of sodium that the patient has in their diet. This generally means telling the patient not to add salt to food or when cooking, and to avoid pre-prepared meals that tend to be high in salt. If you have access to dietetic review, then that should be arranged. 10 to 20% of patients who do this will achieve a negative sodium balance, and that can be sufficient to control their ascites usually when it's mild to begin with. Mm-hmm. So what about restricting fluid intake? So we don't do this as a routine. We need to remember that this is a group of patients who are at high risk of developing renal failure. The one situation we do do it is when the patient has a low sodium and you think that's due to hypervolemic hyponatremia, so a dilutional hyponatremia. So the next stage after your sodium restriction is to use diuretics. We would tend to commence the patient on the aldosterone antagonist, spironolactone, at a dose of 100 milligrams. And then we're going to assess them with daily weights, looking for weight loss of less than 0.5 kilograms per day, or up to a kilogram a day if they have ascites and peripheral edema. 
if you exceed those levels of weight loss, then you're at much higher risk of precipitating uh, a kidney injury. Spinalactone's got a long half-life, so there's no need to split the dose. And we will generally increase the dose every five to seven days, up to a maximum of 400 milligrams a day. If our patient's not responding to spironolactone, then we can try adding in a loop diuretic, such as furosemide, at a dose of 40 to 160 milligrams daily. Now, my personal preference is to increase the dose of spironolactone up to 200 milligrams. And then if the patient isn't achieving satisfactory weight loss, then I'd add in furosemide at a dose of 40 milligrams rather than increasing the spironolactone further. You tend to find it's more effective and you also tend to run into less problems with hyperkalemia. You need to remember to stop your diuretics if the sodium falls below 125, to stop your furosemide if your potassium falls below 3, and to stop your spironolactone if the potassium increases above 6. While we're on the subject of drug treatment ascites, then you do need to review the patient's other existing medication NSAIDs, ACE inhibitors, angiotensin II blockers and alpha blockers all increase the risk of renal impairment in patients with ascites and should ideally be stopped. Mm-hmm. And so is there a reason hepatologists prefer spironolactone as their first-line diuretic when most other specialties would use a loop diuretic like furosemide or bumetanide? So this comes down to the pathophysiology behind patients' ascites. So these patients have portal hypertension, so that means they've got an expanded splanchnic circulation. And this is often at the expense of the systemic circulation where there's hypervolemia. This leads to activation of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system and in turn sodium retention. So all our patients with ascites will have a degree of hyperaldosteronism. And that means if you use a loop diuretic in isolation, you're delivering a high sodium filtrate to the distal convoluting tubule and collecting ducts. And that's where aldosterone acts and it'll rapidly lead to reabsorption of the sodium and therefore negate your diuretic effect. So we need to block aldosterone with spironolactone and then we can introduce our loop diuretic on top if needed. So what do we do if our patient societies doesn't improve with the salt restriction and diuretics? So we often refer to this group of patients as having refractory ascites and for them large volume paracentesis is going to be the mainstay of their management. Sometimes it's done when the patient first comes in the hospital if they've got very large volume ascites and we then use diuretics to try and stop it recurring. Large volume paracentesis is not a difficult skill to learn, but it is a procedure that clinicians shouldn't take lightly. It has significant complications such as bleeding in 2-3% to of patients and that includes major bleeding in 1% of patients. It can also cause iatrogenic infection, bowel perforation, and it can also lead to a post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction, which is the cause of renal failure. Though I said that we don't need to correct a coagulopathy or low platelets necessarily, in a patient having a diagnostic tap, I would recommend that you give fresh frozen plasma to someone with an INR of more than two, and platelets to a patient with a thrombocytopenia of less than 50 before doing large volume paracentesis. We typically give 100 mils of 20% human albumin solution for each 2.5 litres of ascites that's drained. The object of this is to reduce the risk of renal failure secondary to post-paracentesis circulatory dysfunction. Now this typically becomes evident about 48 hours after the paracentesis, so you don't need to worry if you get behind with your albumin during paracentesis. What you shouldn't do is clamp the drain in order to try and catch up. What's more important is that the patient ultimately receives the correct dose of albumin either during or immediately after the procedure. It's also important to stop diuretics during the 48-hour period 
post-paracentesis to reduce that risk of precipitating a kidney injury. You should also be removing the drain after six hours and that's another reason not to clamp it to make sure you get rid of as much fluid as possible during that period. One of the things we also need to consider in a patient with refractory ascites is whether or not we stop the beta blocker. Many of these patients will be on a beta blocker as prophylaxis against variceal hemorrhage and when to stop the beta blocker in this group of patients is an area of debate among liver doctors. Most hepatologists would stop them in a, a patient with hepatorenal syndrome or SBP but there's conflicting evidence as to whether they increase mortality in this group of patients with refractory ascites. But if you found that the patient had a low mean arterial blood pressure, then I think that would be the time to stop the beta blocker. In terms of drug treatments in refractory ascites, we very occasionally use the vasopressor midodrine. That can lead to a rise in the mean arterial pressure and therefore improve sodium excretion. And it will sometimes convert a patient with refractory ascites to one who is diuretic sensitive. The evidence is weak, but you may wish to consider it. And we typically use 7.5 milligrams three times a day. We'd we'll be using it in a patient with a systolic blood pressure of less than 90 or a mean arterial pressure of less than 65 millimeters of mercury. You do need to be careful, however, to make sure you don't cause supine hypertension. So what can we do for the patient who requires frequent large volume paracentesis? So it depends a little on what stage of their illness they're at, in particular whether there's a reversible element to their liver disease. If they have a reversible element, then you're probably going to want to continue with paracentesis and hopefully see that their need for drainage gradually reduces. The best example of that would be a patient who's presented with decompensated cirrhosis due to alcohol and who's then abstinent. You'd hope in that situation to see an improvement in the patient's liver function for 6 to 12 months and you'd want to therefore watch and wait and see whether you get improvement before thinking about any other interventions. The other thing you need to consider is that having ascites in a patient with liver cirrhosis indicates a poor prognosis, so the mortality is about 40% at one year. And that means the development of ascites should lead you to consider whether your patient should be referred for liver transplantation. This will again depend on whether you think that there's likely to be any improvement in liver function with just time. If, however, it doesn't look like there's going to be improvement in liver function and our patient's not a candidate for liver transplantation, then we do need to consider an alternative to large volume paracentesis. Not only is regular paracentesis not popular with patients, it puts them at risk of complications on each occasion, and it's also associated with a worsening of the patient's nutritional status due to the negative nitrogen balance that results from the protein loss in the acidic fluid. So the first thing we'd wish to consider is whether our patient should have a TIPS or transjugular intrahepatic portosystemic shunt to give it its full name. Now most studies that have looked at TIPS and refractory ascites show that it leads to better ascites control, it improves transplant-free survival, and it's associated with less renal failure. However, that is at the expense of more encephalopathy. So the key to successful TIPS in a patient with refractory ascites is patient selection. You've got to remember that a TIPS will reduce the portal blood flow to the liver and it's also creating a shunt and therefore it may lead to worsening liver function and encephalopathy and that's going to be more likely if your patient has pre-existing encephalopathy or has poor liver synthetic function. There's some recent BSG guidelines on TIPS that have been published and they mention a number of factors that may make it less likely that your patient would benefit from TIPS and they include having a bilirubin of more than 50 platelets of less than 75, a MELS score of more than or equal to 18, a child Pew score more than or equal to 10, pre-existing encephalopathy, active infection, 
or cardiac failure or pulmonary hypertension. To put that in perspective, if you take a patient with a bilirubin of over 100 who has a TIPS, then only 5% of those patients will survive 30 days, and that's a clear group in which TIPS should be avoided. If you do decide to proceed with TIPS, then it's also important that you consent to your patient for the risks. There's an approximately 3% risk of a major life-threatening complication during or shortly after the procedure, such as an intraperitoneal bleed, hepatic infarction, or acute cardiac dysfunction. And then you've got the more longer term risk of 10 to 30% risk of having encephalopathy. You also need to be mindful that if you do go ahead, that it will not lead to immediate or complete control of the ascites. In fact, you should expect an improvement in only about half to three quarters of patients who undergo a TIPS for refractory ascites. If they're on diuretics, then you should halve those post-procedure and stop the beta blocker if they're taking one. So if our patient's not a candidate for transplantation and they have contraindication to TIPS, then the only other option we can consider is having a tunneled acidic drain. Now these can improve a patient's quality of life. They don't need to come regularly to the hospital for paracentesis. And if you're draining a couple of litres two to three times a week, then it avoids the abdomen becoming very distended and the discomfort associated with that and also the loss of appetite. The downside, however, is infection. And in my experience, these tunnel drains do tend to universally become infected if they're left in for long enough. But even then, the improvement in a patient's quality of life is such that patients will often request that they're reinserted once the infection is treated. My preference, however, because the infection risk is that we only consider them in patients who are nearing the end of their life. And I'm talking here about perhaps the last six to 12 months of life. So that ends this podcast on ascites due to liver cirrhosis. I hope you found it useful and thank you for listening. Thank you very much.